chapter 3, verse number 14. Bridge kids are dismissed at this time. Your teachers are ready for you at the back. This is an age-appropriate Sunday school for our elementary age kids, grades K through 5. Grab your word and let's go straight to Ephesians chapter number 3. <laughs> Don't give up on God for you won't give up on you. Ephesians chapter three, verse number fourteen. Don't give up on God. Oh, he won't, he won't, he won't, he won't give up on you. Chapter Ephesians chapter 3, begin with verse number 14. He's so faithful, y'all. <laughs> He's able. Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that ye may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. One of the best ways to discover a Christian's chief anxieties and ambitions is to study the content of his prayers and the intensity with which he prays them. We all pray about what concerns us. 
and are evidently not concerned about matters we do not include in our prayers. Prayer expresses desire. Here in Ephesians chapter number 3, beginning with verse number 14, Paul offers an intercessory prayer for this church at Ephesus. And in this prayer, we see Paul's chief concerns for this body of believers. But before we actually get to the content of the prayer, Paul offers in verses 14 and 15 the prelude to this prayer, the introduction to the prayer. Paul opens this section with the same prepositional clause that he began the prior section with. Remember, when we studied a couple of weeks ago, Ephesians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, he started with this prepositional clause, for this reason. And we said that that was the beginning of an intercessory prayer. However, he digresses for the next 10, 11 verses to explain why he sees himself or considers himself to be a prisoner of Christ. So he starts it, digresses, and now he picks it back up again in verse number 14. He says, for this reason. We, we must, basic Bible study skills, when he says, for this reason, that's a clue that we need to go back and see what the reason actually is. So we must ask ourselves, what reason, Paul? Well, if 3.1 is tied to 3.14 in the following verses, then we have to go back to chapter 2. Remember, in chapter 2, Paul explained to this church that Jews and Gentiles are now one new body. They are a new race, a new humanity, known as the church. He told them that they are now members of the same household built upon which Christ is the cornerstone. And as they grow, they grow into a holy temple that God now dwells inside of. So the fact that these hostile groups are now at peace with one another causes Paul to pray. He knows that the practicality of this new reality of being the church will not be without its difficulties. Though they are one new man, they will still at times be tempted to live as two separate groups. There will be difficulties. There will be challenges. There will be frustrations at one another. So Paul says, I'm praying for you. Friends, how often do you pray for your local church? When Brandon frustrates you, you ought to pray. When your neighbor frustrates you, you ought to pray. When we're dealing with difficult topics like race and election and predestination and immigration, you ought to pray. 
Not fuss, pray. Not get angry, pray. You, you, do you know that you ought to be praying Saturday night for what's going to happen on Sunday morning? We need to pray for the body as a whole and the members individually. You, you know, church, here's the great thing about prayer. It's hard to fight one another and pray for one another at the same time. Not only should we pray for our local church, but we should pray for the entire body of Christ. One of the things that we're going to try to be a little more intentional about is praying for other churches on Sunday morning. Because we didn't open up the bridge church to compete with anybody. We came to cooperate with the rest of the churches for the sake of the kingdom. We ought to pray for international churches. We ought to pray for our missionaries. You ought to pray for the church. So we've seen that the, 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 the context of chapter 2, but there's a more immediate context of verse 13. At the end of the prior section, Paul exhorts his readers. He says, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. He, he admonishes them not to get discouraged over his own suffering. He's suffering under house arrest because he preached the gospel that led to the salvation of the Gentiles. He, Paul says, so my suffering is for your benefit. So, so don't get discouraged over this. I had to go through this for your benefit. So he says, I don't want your faith to weaken over my suffering, which is why he prays in this prayer that they would be strengthened. But before we get to the actual prayer, let's talk about to whom this prayer is actually addressed. Paul says in verse 14, he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. When God's people prayed to him in the Old Testament, they typically did not refer to him as father. When, when, however, Paul uses the term father frequently in Ephesians to communicate the intimacy of God's relationship with believers. As father, God has adopted them into his family. And as his children, they are now co-heirs with Christ. They are members of his household. As father, they can now come before his presence boldly and confidently. So he says, I bow my knees before the father. He is the father, verse 15 says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul here affirms the truth that God is the creator and originator of all people. By naming them, that was an act of authority. So, so Paul says, I'm praying to the God who is the father of the of of the children of God, the creator of all, the church, and the Lord of all. That's the prelude. 
Now we get to the heart of this section. Paul moves from this prelude to the actual petitions in verse 16 and 19. Here's the substance of Paul's prayer for this church. He says, beginning with verse 16, he says, I I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul's first prayer for this church is that they would be strengthened with spiritual power. This is a prayer for spiritual empowerment. He wants them to get spiritually stronger. In other words, he's praying for spiritual growth that leads to spiritual maturity. However, that spiritual maturity will only come through the power of the Holy Spirit in their inner being. Friends, notice that spiritual growth is a gift. It it is something that God gives us. Spiritual maturity cannot be achieved with physical power or natural means. Spiritual maturity is the product of the empower of the Holy Spirit and our submission to his leading. Paul says, I want you to be strengthened with spiritual power. Then he says, in your inner being. The fact that Paul prays for their inner being proves that Paul delineates between an outer being and an inner being. What's the difference? The outer being is our physical self. And according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, our outer being is wasting away. But this inner being is being renewed day by day. What is the inner being? The inner being is the very center of who we are. It's it's the way we think, the way we feel, our motivations, our our intentions, and whatever else lies at the center of our being. That's our inner being. So Paul's prayer is that our inner inner man, our, our spirit, would be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the way, sometimes people wonder if we believe in the Holy Spirit here at the British Church. They they waiting on y'all to take laps. See, when they come here, y'all not slain in the Spirit. Where I'm from, we would get a, we, they, they'd always, uh, some of these churches, not the church I grew up in, other churches that I went to, they'd have white sheets so that when uh, the women fell out or were slain in the spirit, they'd cover them up with the white sheets so you couldn't see under the dress. <laughs> Y'all think I'm making this up, don't you? I wish I was. They, 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 because they, they think every time we gather, there ought to be shouting music. You know, Manuel and, and Julius going all crazy and stuff with all that fast music. That, that's how you know. See, for some people, that's how you know the church 
believes in the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit is in their midst. Paul says, if you want to know if somebody's got the Holy Spirit, look at how they live. Are they growing? Are they maturing? See, 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 what we, some stuff today that we talk about, the Holy Spirit being present, that ain't really the Holy Spirit. That's just emotionalism. Now, now, now let me balance this thing out because some of us are, are, are so conservative in our worship that we think we ought not have any emotion. That ain't biblical. We, we praise God with our whole being. God created us to be emotional beings. And we, can't, we should be emotional when we worship God. You can't sit up here and say, I love God, and then talk about you can't, you can't be emotional in worship. But sometimes, sometimes when we get in worship, all we want is the emotional part of the worship. And Paul says, if you want to know if a believer is really spirit-filled, if they got the Holy Ghost, then look, look, look at if they're growing in Christ. See if they lie a little less now. See if they talk about folks a little less now. See if they gossip a little less now. That's how you know people are being re- uh, transformed by the Spirit. You, you can show up on Sunday morning talking all the tongues that you want to. But if you leave here and speak in tongues to me, I'm, t- oh, I'm talking about the other tongues, you know, where there has four letter words. I'm not all that impressed with your Holy Ghost in here. Okay, that's not even in my manuscript. I'm sorry. (laughs) So Paul's prayer is that our inner man, our spirit, would be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit. And friends, this is still an appropriate prayer to pray for ourselves and for one another. Though our inner man is being renewed day by day, it still gets weak at times. The pressures, distresses, troubles, and trials of this life can lead to crises of faith. And these different situations can devastate us and steal our joy and peace. A weak inner man leads to doubt. Fear, anxiety, distrust, sin, frustration, mental strain, emotional and spiritual imbalance. So we have to ask God to give us spiritual strength through the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit strengthens us, helps us to grow up in Christ, the result According to verse 17, is that Christ will dwell in our hearts through faith. Now, we have to really understand the language here to understand this, because there's the indwelling of Christ that happens to us at the moment we become saved. At the moment we become believers, we are indwelled by Christ permanently and forever. So, so, this, is, this, is, so this is not saying you get Christ later. No, 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 no. Paul, what Paul uses here, the language that he uses here, the Greek word here for dwell is not the word that is usually used when speaking of Christ dwelling within us. The term used here means to inhabit or, or, or to settle down in the sense of being in possession of. 
What Paul is saying here is that as the Spirit empowers us and strengthens us, Christ will continue to be in full control of us. As the Spirit empowers, Christ becomes the controlling factor in our attitudes and conduct. Christ takes full possession of every part of our heart. So Paul's prayer is that we will be strengthened with spiritual power, but secondly, Paul prays that they would also be strengthened by grasping the limitless love of God. Not only does Paul pray that they will be strengthened by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, but he wants them, he wants, he prays that they will be strengthened to comprehend the limitless love of God. Look at verses 17 through 19. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul says, you've already been rooted and grounded in love at the moment of salvation. But that understanding at at the moment of salvation, that understanding of the love of Christ is still elementary. He says, now you need to grow up. You need to become stronger in your comprehension of the love of Christ. That word comprehend means to grasp to make one's own, to take possession. Paul's prayer is that his readers would be strong enough to mentally grasp the unlimited love of Christ. And friends, this is still a relevant prayer today. We need to grasp the vast love of of Christ. Friends, the love of Christ is wide enough to embrace the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The love of Christ is long enough to last forever. For love never ends. The love of Christ is high enough to take sinners to heaven. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. The love of Christ is deep enough to take Christ to the very depths to reach the lowest sinner. Remember, he being found in human form, humbled himself. The old preacher would say, it's so high you can't get over it. It's so low you can't get under it. It's so wide you can't get around it. Oh, that we would know the love of Christ. Charles Hodge, a Presbyterian theologian, said that God should love the good, righteous, the pure, the godly, is what we can understand but that the infinitely holy should love the unholy 
and give his son for their redemption is the wonder of all wonders. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Friends, oh, how he loves us. It is Paul's prayer and my prayer that we would be strengthened by grasping this love. And friends, you may be here today. You may feel like you are unlovely and unlovable. Friend, Paul's prayer for you. My prayer for you today is that you would comprehend the limitless love of God because it was while we were yet sinners that God demonstrated his love and Christ died for us. If, if God could love us when we were at our worst, when we were his enemies, when we were, had a hostile relationship, where we were destined for him, if he could love us and send Christ to die for us, oh, it's nothing for him to love us now. Somebody needs to know today that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that can separate you from the love of God. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. That's the end. We see the prelude, we see the petitions. Paul now ends with praise. In verse 20 through 21, he says, Now to him who is able. Do exceedingly above all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Amen. This is what we call a doxology. It's from the Greek word doxa, which means glory. It is a statement or a hymn of praise to God. And Paul begins, verse 20, by giving praise to, the, to him who is able. Friends, that is a sermon in and of itself. Friends, our God is able. The word able in, in, in this, it, right here in this verse comes from the Greek word dunamis where we get our word dynamic or even dynamite. Typically, it's translated power. It also means to be strong enough. Look what Paul has done. He's brought this concept of strength full circle. He's praying for us to be strengthened by the one who is strong enough to strengthen us. And he's strong enough because he's powerful. Well, wait, wait. He's not just powerful. He's all-powerful. 
Friends, this is reason to be excited this morning. Our God is able. I simply want to remind us this morning that there is nothing too hard for our God. I'm talking about a God who by the Holy Spirit caused a virgin to be impregnated with his own son, Jesus Christ. That's what our God is able to do. And that same, that same son who was born to a virgin died on an old rugged cross for the sin of the world, was buried. But here's how powerful God is. God took that dead son and raised him from the grave bright early Sunday morning. Our God is able. Friends, he's able to save anybody. He's able to save from the guttermost to the uttermost. <laughs> Our God is able. He's able to turn your sorrow into joy. He's able to make out a way out of no way. He's able to deliver you from your sin. He's able to deliver you from all manner of diseases. He's able to restore the backslider. He's able to lift up the downtrodden. Our God is able. <laughs> Paul prays and then he gives praise to the one who's able, watch this, to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ever ask or think. Friends, you can't ask for too much from God. <laughs> His resources are inexhaustible. He, he's got deep pockets. Friends, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates are paupers to God. <laughs> I'm about to run out of here myself. <laughs> They're deeper than deep. You can't out-ask out him. You can't even out-think him. You can't even begin to imagine what God is able to do. That's the God we pray to, church. Friends, whatever you could possibly think to ask God for is minuscule to an almighty God. God looks at cancer and laughs. <laughs> to this God, come on, praise team, y'all come back to me, belongs all the glory in the church. It is through the church that God gets glory. Why? Because the church is the masterpiece of his grace. Friends, that is the principal goal of the church, to bring glory to God, both then, now, and always. So then how do we respond? I, I think simply we respond two ways. One, by praying. Let's pray for ourselves and for one another that we would be strengthened. Somebody came here today weak. And we serve a God who's able to strengthen you with Holy Ghost power. I pray that we would all know the vast, limitless love of Christ. then I think the second response is for us to give praise, to give glory 
to the God that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ever ask or think. Friends, if I were just preaching verse 20 and 21, I would preach from this thought, your God is too small. We serve a mighty God. He's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. We serve a God that specializes in the impossible. As I think about the medical profession, everybody has a specialty. Well, most, a lot of doctors have a specialty. Orthopedics. Gerontologists. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about. Oncology, gynecology, thank you. Yeah. They have their specialty. Dr. Jesus specializes in impossibilities. Have you any river that seems uncrossable? God specializes in things that seem impossible because he's able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. For someone, there's another response for you today. You are here today. And God is calling for you to respond in a special way to his love. God so loved you that he sent you here on this Sunday morning to hear about his limitless love, his relentless love. He's pursuing you this morning. He wants you to know that he loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die for your crimes, for your sins, for your transgressions, for your rebellion. He loved you so much that he sent his own son to take your death penalty because you committed crimes against God. You failed to give him the glory that he's due. You failed to worship him and him alone. You failed. You've sinned, and as a result, you, you deserve death. You deserve separation from God in hell. But God loves you. That if you would just put all of your trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died on an old rugged cross, was buried, but rose victoriously from the grave on the third day. If you will believe, you will surrender your life to him, then you will have eternal life. You will be saved, delivered, rescued from the very wrath of God. 